All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton. Once again, standing in the confessional corner. This week, we continue on into the fifth article of the Augsburg, Augsburg Apology. Looking today at paragraphs 112 to 132, as we talk about unity, but also a major focus on the fact that good works follow faith. And the fact that Lutherans don't deny good works. They don't demean good works. They actually require good works. But not good works to be saved. Good works because you are saved. We jump in where we left off last week at paragraph 112 to 118. Unity cannot last, is necessarily dissolved, whenever the bishops impose heavier burdens upon the people or when they have no respect for weakness in the people. Dissensions arise when the people judge too severely the conduct of teachers or despise the teachers because of certain less serious faults. For then another kind of teaching and other teachers are sought after. On the other hand, protect Perfection, that is, the church's integrity, is preserved when the strong bear with the weak, when the people put up with some faults in the conduct of their teachers, and when the bishops make some allowances for the people's weakness. The books of all the wise are full of these teachings about fairness, namely that in everyday life we should make many allowances mutually for the sake of common peace. Paul teaches as frequently, both here and elsewhere, Therefore, the adversaries do not argue carefully from the term perfection that love justifies. For Paul speaks of common integrity and peace. Ambrose interprets this passage in this way. Just as a building is said to be perfect or entire when all its parts are fitly joined together with one another. Furthermore, it is disgraceful for the adversaries to preach so much about love while they don't show it anywhere. What are they doing now? They are tearing apart churches. They are writing laws in blood and asking the most merciful prince, the emperor, to enforce them. They are killing priests and other good men if any one of them has slightly indicated that he does not entirely approve of their clear abuses. What they are doing is not consistent with their claims of love, which if the adversaries would follow, the churches would be peaceful and the state would be, have peace. This turmoil would be lessened if the adversaries would stop being so bitter about certain traditions. These traditions are useless for godliness and are hardly observed by those very persons who most earnestly defend them. The adversaries easily forgive them, but do not likewise forgive others, according to the passage in the poet. I forgive myself, Mavius said. But what they do is very far from those praises of love that they recite here from Paul. They do not understand the word any more than the walls of a building that echo it back. They cite also this sentence from Peter. Love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4.8. Peter also speaks of love toward one's neighbor because he joins this passage to the rule that commands love for one another. No apostle would have imagined, A, our love overcomes sin and death, B, love satisfies God's wrath and reconciles us to God while excluding Christ as mediator, and C, love in and of itself is righteousness before God without Christ as mediator. For this love, if such a thing could exist, would be a righteousness of the law, not of the gospel. The gospel promises reconciliation and righteousness to us if we believe that for the sake of Christ as reconciler, the Father has been reconciled, and that Christ's merits are given to us. Peter urges us a little before to come to Christ that we may be built upon him. He adds in 1 Peter 2.6, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. When God judges and convicts us, our love does not free us from confusion. But faith in Christ frees us from these fears because we know that for Christ's sake, we are forgiven. 
All right, so Melanchthon continues with this unity, that this unity would be possible if the adversaries would just follow their own echoes of the love that they desire to be shown among the people. But again, they do not show that love themselves. They are tearing apart churches. They are writing walls in blood. They are killing priests and other good men if there is any slight deviation or even inclination that they might be going the way of the reformers, that they don't fully and wholeheartedly accept the teachings that have been passed down from the Pope. This is the classic definition of a cult, the idea that you cannot question the leadership, which is terribly wrong. No church, no person, save Christ himself, is able to say, if you do not agree with me, you are going to hell. That simply for disagreeing with me, you will go to hell. Because we're not perfect. We aren't the way that we ought to be. We're getting closer to it because we are being transformed from one level of grace to another. But it is not in our realm as human beings to say that we have the entire truth. Yes, we can say we have the entire truth of the Bible. Yes, we have that. But so do the Roman Catholics. So do the Baptists. So do the Eastern Orthodox. So do the non-denominationals. And we all interpret things differently. Because nothing has changed since the Reformation. It is still an argument going on about what is Christian love. And especially for the Catholics that try to bring out the high points of Catholic history, they have to go with also the low points. But again, we don't like to bring out the low points in history. We like to just hit the highlights and see where it goes from there. But the problem is, when you just hit the highlights, when you don't deal with the nitty-gritty of everyday life, if you don't deal with the fact that you might also be wrong and aren't willing to be corrected for it, now there is an issue all of itself, and that definitely takes away the unity. We continue on in paragraphs 119 to 122, where we pick up yet another passage that the Roman theologians would quote against the Lutherans. Besides, this sentence about love is taken from Proverbs 10:12, where the complete opposite clearly shows how love ought to be understood. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. This verse teaches precisely the same thing as Paul does in Colossians. If any dissensions would occur, they should be moderated and settled by our fair and patient conduct. Dissensions, it says, increase by means of hatred. We often see the tragedies arise from the most trifling offenses. Certain petty offenses occurred between Gaius Caesar and Pompey. If one had yielded a very little to the other, civil war would not have arisen. But while each gave in to his own hatred, the greatest commotions arose from a matter of no importance. Many heresies have also arisen in the church only from the hatred of teachers. Therefore, this verse does not refer to a person's own fault, but to the faults of others. When it says that love covers a multitude of sins, it means those of others. 
Even though these offenses occur, love overlooks, forgives, and yields to them, not carrying all things to the extremity of justice. Peter, therefore, does not mean that love merits the forgiveness of sins in God's sight, or that it is an atoning sacrifice excluding Christ as mediator. He also does not mean that such love regenerates and justifies, but that it is not gloomy, harsh, and uncooperative toward people. It overlooks the mistakes of its friends while it deplores the harsher manners of others. A well-known saying puts it this way, No, but do not hate the manners of a friend. Nor did the apostle thoughtlessly teach so often about this office what the philosophers call leniency. For this virtue is necessary for keeping public harmony in the church and the civil government. Harmony in the church cannot last unless pastors and churches mutually overlook and pardon many things. The one thing I want to point out here is from Proverbs 10, that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Or as Peter writes it, love covers a multitude of sins. But it is that hatred that stirs up strife. It is that hatred that brings about the heresies in the church, as paragraph 121 says. Many heresies have also arisen in the church only from the hatred of the teachers. Somebody did not like somebody else, and so whatever they taught, they had to teach the exact opposite. No, no, no. That is not the way the Christian church is supposed to work. And that is what dominates the world in heresies, is that we don't pay attention to what the text says and what it means. We pay attention to how it makes us feel or who is speaking it to us. And Paul has to point this out at the end of his career as he writes to the Philippians in chapter 1 verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. He says, yes, there are many teachers out there preaching Christ. Some of them do it out of envy. Some of them do them to have bigger churches than somebody else. Some do it to have more notoriety and have more books published in their name. And that's great and wonderful. We do need books published to talk about these things. We do need strong churches. But strong churches are aren't those that have the big numbers. Strong churches are those who are focused and firmly grounded in the foundation of the word. That is what makes a church strong. Not the number of butts in the pews. The number of hearts seeking after God and showing love to one another. Now we move into paragraphs 123 to 132 where Melanchthon goes into three different parts as he goes back to James 2.24 and shows how James is not in line with the Roman teaching, but with the Lutheran teaching. So we'll look at each of these individually. Uh, paragraphs 123 and 124. From James 2.24 they cite, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. No other passage is supposed to be more contrary to our belief. But the reply is easy and plain. If the adversaries do not attach their own opinions about merits of works, the words of James have in them nothing that is unhelpful to us. But wherever there is mention of works, the adversaries add their own false godless opinions. They say we merit the forgiveness of sins by means of good works, that good works are a satisfaction and price on account of which God is reconciled to us, and that good works overcome the terrors of sin and of death. They also say that good works are accepted in God's sight on account of their goodness, and that they do not need mercy in Christ as reconciler. 
None of these things came into James's mind. Yet the adversaries defend such teachings like this passage of James as an excuse. First, the first of the three points, we must consider that the passage is more against the adversaries than against us. For the adversaries teach that a person is justified by love and works. They say nothing about faith by which we receive Christ as reconciler. In fact, they condemn this faith, not only in sentences and writings, but also by the sword and capital punishment. They endeavor to exterminate it in the church. James teaches much more. He does not leave out faith or present love and preference to faith, but retains faith, so that in justification, Christ may not be excluded as reconciler. When Paul forms a summary of the Christian life, he also includes faith and love in 1 Timothy 1.5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What is the first thing this means? Is that the passage in James that is the most cited passage against Lutherans by anybody is more against them than against us. And it is so far beyond what James teaches that the Roman theologians are not only saying good works justify, but they condemn faith, not only in their writings, but they do it by the sword and capital punishment and death. They put people to death because they believe that they are reconciled by faith and not by their works. And this is an issue that comes about with their invention of the sacrament of penance and the fact that you have these works that after you have confessed your sins, you do these things and it'll take a little bit of your time away from purgatory. It will take away part of your sin and the guilt, but again, after you're dead, you'll still have to pay it off in purgatory. That is what the indulgences were made for in the first place, was to forgive time in purgatory. And so, they see that as a great moneymaker and a great source of income for them and need it to keep going because they are trying to build the Vatican at this time and they need the money from the people. And if the people go on to talking about being justified by faith alone, if the priests go on to talk about being justified by faith alone, their money dwindles. And they cannot build their big, magnificent palace in the midst of Rome. That's the first point. The second point. The subject matter itself shows that the works spoken of here follow faith, and that such faith is not dead, but living and effective in the heart. James did not believe that we earn the forgiveness of sins and grace by good works. After all, he is talking about the works of those who have been justified, who have already been reconciled and accepted, and who have received forgiveness of sins. Therefore, the adversaries err when they conclude that James teaches that we merit forgiveness of sins and grace by good works, and that we have access to God by our works, apart from Christ as reconciler. James is talking to people who are already reconciled with Jesus, who are already Christians. They are already saved. James is talking about faith that is living and active. Faith that shows itself through the works of love, as we talked about last week. James would never have in his mind that we have this covenant of works that we keep up with, and that if we do them all right, or if we do enough good ones to balance out the bad ones, then Jesus will accept us. 
That's not the way Jesus works. The Pharisees tried that. The Jews tried that. And Jesus said, no, that is not what I've ever taught. Jesus has always taught faith. We go back to Genesis chapter 3. When God commands Adam and Eve to be driven from the garden, does he give them a list of things to do to make up for their sin? No. He promises a redeemer from the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. No works there. Simply the promise that has to be accepted by faith. Moving on to the third point, paragraph 126. James said a little earlier that regeneration happens through the gospel. For he says in James 1.18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. When James says that we have been born, reborn by the gospel, he teaches that we have been born again and justified through faith. For the promise about Christ is grasped only through faith when we set it against the terrors of sin and of death. James does not, therefore, think that we are born again through our works. The gospel regenerates. The law cannot do it. The law always accuses. The law always shows us that we fall short. The gospel says you are forgiven. Not because you tried hard enough. Not because you did okay. The gospel forgives and reconciles because of Jesus. That is the entirety of the gospel. And so he summarizes in paragraphs 127 to 132 these three points. From these things it is clear that James does not contradict us. He criticized lazy and secure minds that imagine they have faith, although they do not have it. He made a distinction between dead and living faith. He says that faith does not bring forth good works is dead. He also says that a living faith brings forth good works. Furthermore, we have already shown several times what we mean by faith. For we do not mean passive knowledge, such as devils have. Instead, we mean faith that resists the terrors of conscience and encourages and comforts terrified hearts. Such faith is not an easy matter, as the adversaries dream. Neither is it a human power, it is a divine power. Through faith we are reborn and overcome the devil and death. Paul says to the Colossians that faith is powerful through the power of God and overcomes death, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Chapter 2, verse 12. Since this faith is a new life, it necessarily produces new movements and works. So James is right in denying that we are justified by such a faith that is without works. But when he says that we are justified by faith and works, he certainly does not mean that we are born again by works. Neither does he say that Christ is our reconciler only partly, and our works are our atoning sacrifice in part. Nor does he describe the way of justification, but only the nature of the just, after they have been already been justified and regenerated. Here to be justified does not mean that a righteous person is made from a wicked person. It means to be pronounced righteous in a judicial sense, as in Romans 2.13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. These words, doers of the law who will be justified, contain nothing contrary to our doctrine. We too believe about James's words, a person is justified by faith, by works, and not by faith alone. Chapter 2, verse 24. Because people are certainly pronounced righteous having faith and good works. As we have said, the saints' good works are righteous and please God because of faith. For James praises only works produced by faith, as he testifies when he says of Abraham, faith was completed by his works. Chapter 2, verse 22. 
doers of the law who will be justified, namely those who believe God from the heart are pronounced righteous. Afterward they have good fruit, which please him because of faith. So they are the fulfillment of the law. These things, simply put, contain nothing incorrect. However, they are distorted by the adversaries who attach to them godless opinions made in their mind. For it does not follow that A, works earn the forgiveness of sins, B, works regenerate hearts, C, works are an atoning sacrifice, D, works please without Christ as the atoning sacrifice, and E, works do not need Christ as the atoning sacrifice. James says nothing about these things, yet the adversaries shamelessly conclude such things from James's words. All right, so far the reading for this week. A couple of things. The contrast in James of a living faith, a faith that is active through love and works, against a dead faith, a faith of just head knowledge, like the devils have. Because the devils do believe, and they tremble, but not because their faith is in Christ. Their faith is in what they have seen in history what they have seen from the very beginning since their fall from heaven in the first place. Their faith, their belief, is only in the history and what is destined to happen. And then he talks about not being justified by faith alone, but by works, is that this is how the new man, this is how the regenerated Christian lives. This is how you act when you are born again, that you do good works, not because you're trying to impress God, not because you're trying to win his favor, but because you are his child, that you are simply doing the will of your Father who is in heaven. That's what happens when good works follow faith. It is not about justification. It is about sanctification. It is about the right living in the light of Christ. And that's all for this week. This is Pastor Doug Minton again, wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.